Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell with the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. Today we get to talk about Longfellow. Now, you may have heard me talk about Longfellow in the past. Some of my friends and family think I might talk about Longfellow a little too much, but he's my favorite American poet and the poet that I've spent the most time with in my long life. If I haven't given a shout-out yet to Louise Luthi, the wonderful junior high English teacher who introduced me to Longfellow's poetry, I would like to right now say, Louise Luthi, wherever you are, You handed me a book of Longfellow and told me, required me even, to read it in seventh grade, and I have loved Longfellow ever since. So today we're going to talk about an early Longfellow poem. The history of this Longfellow poem I've actually been doing some research on recently and found out some really interesting things. So Longfellow, he's born in 1807. He grows up in America that's really newly open and partially still not quite open, to the idea that a worthy, permissible, admirable career for an American young man could be the career of writer. A lot of people thought that America was too young, right? We just had revolution and establishment of us as a country, you know, mere decades before Longfellow was born. It's not really time to become decadent and flowery and care about poetry and cuisine. We need statesmen. We need lawyers. Well, Longfellow's father felt this way, and he was a lawyer and wanted Longfellow to go into law. But Longfellow loved literature. He loved poetry, and he had started reading these really early American writers, especially Washington Irving, who had started writing and publishing even in the 18-teens and 20s. Now, this was seen as rare. It was kind of anomalous in the 18-teens and 20s to actually dedicate one's life to being a published popular author. But people like Washington Irving, William Cullen Bryant, and soon a man named Edgar Allan Poe would start publishing. And even if they weren't very popular at first, Poe certainly wasn't, they started to clear the way for writers to try and make their lives as writers, or at least have part of their careers as dedicated to the creation of creative writing for the American populace, and maybe even broader than that. So Longfellow is kind of getting in on the American writing scene very early. His earliest publications were, in fact, translations of European poetry, especially Spanish and French and Italian poetry, that he made originally for his students. After college, he was hired to be a professor of modern languages at Bowdoin College in Maine, and he realized there are no real good college textbooks for modern languages, and so he kind of made his own, and through this he started publishing translations of poetry. Well, every once in a while, as he was translating poetry from the classics of European Romanticism and before, he would, you know, doodle his own poem, jot it here, jot it there, and after a decade or so of teaching and writing a poem here and there, he really started to hit his stride in the late 1830s. And he stumbled on a style of poem that he called a psalm. Really, these poems are kind of in what we would call a hymn form or a ballad form. Lines of tetrameter and trimeter alternating. We've talked about that before. The da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
But he didn't think of it as a hymn. He didn't think of it as a ballad. He called it first a psalm. And he wrote his first psalm, which he called a psalm of life, and published it. It was very popular, a psalm of life. You may have heard before. The last stanza of it is, Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. It was sort of seen as almost like a self-help ditty, or maybe a little more nobly, a expression of a man trying to assure us that life was worth living and the hard life was worth living. It was very popular in the 19th century, whether or not we think it's a little cheesy these days. And the Psalm of Life was so popular and so oft printed and memorized and repeated that it kind of became a joke by the 20th century. I don't actually want to talk about a Psalm of Life today. I want to talk about the poem that Longfellow originally titled A Second Psalm of Life. The subtitle of it is The Light of Stars in its first publication. When he published his poems, Longfellow would first send them to magazines. The Knickerbocker magazine in New York was a very popular magazine in New England at the time, and he sent many of these early psalms, he called them, to the Knickerbocker magazine. So a second psalm of life, The Light of Stars, was published in Knickerbocker in January 1839. And after it was popular and the other psalm of life was popular, he, he wrote a few more of these psalms and he collected them into a collection called Voices of the Night, which he published at the end of 1839. When he published these psalms in a collection, he dropped the title of The Light of Stars, a second psalm of life, and just kept this subtitle, The Light of Stars. So if you open up a, a collection of Longfellow to Voices of the Night, you'll see this poem under the title, The Light of Stars. I'm going to read it, and then I want to comment on it both autobiographically, because this has been an important poem to me in my life, and also formally and thematically. So this is The Light of Stars by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The night is come, but not too soon, and sinking silently, all silently, the little moon drops down behind the sky. There is no light in earth or heaven, but the cold light of stars. And the first watch of night is given to the red planet Mars. Is it the tender star of love, the star of love and dreams? Oh no, from that blue tent above a hero's armor gleams. And earnest thoughts within me rise when I behold afar, suspended in the evening skies, the shield of that red star. O oh, star of strength, I see thee stand and smile upon my pain. Thou beckonest with thy mailed hand, and I am strong again. Within my breast there is no light but the cold light of stars. I give the first watch of the night to the red planet Mars, the star of the unconquered will. He rises in my breast, serene and resolute and still and calm and self-possessed. And thou too, whosoe'er thou art, that readest this brief psalm, as one by one thy hopes depart, be resolute and calm. O oh, fear not in a world like this, and thou shalt know ere long how sublime a thing it is to suffer and be strong. So this was written after A Psalm of Life, and it has a little bit of that, let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate. But it's a softer poem, a little less bombastic. 
and also a little more, I think, understanding in its interaction with, with human sorrow. But like a psalm of life, in the end, it was seen in its day, and I think we can still see today, that it's, it's a poem of encouragement. It's kind of a buck-up poem. But it takes its time getting there. And that, this is something that people often forget about our great poems of encouragement uh, by people like Longfellow and, and throughout the, the 19th century. A good poet, a poet who writes a poem that ends in sort of a let us then do this, they have to earn it. I think of Tennyson's Ulysses that at the end has this stirring call to, ste- to seek, to strive, to find, and not to yield. If it had started there, if it had said, oh, reader, seek, strive, find, don't yield, we might think, well, who's this guy? Why, why is he giving me advice? But Tennyson's Ulysses, which was written a few years after Longfellow's Psalms, it takes dozens and dozens and dozens of lines to get to that point. And in fact, a lot of the poem is building up to an ability to even be positive. There's a lot of sadness and sorrow and boredom and acadie, sort of uh, bored despair in it. And there's something similar here. So let's look at these first two stanzas. The night is come, but not too soon. And sinking silently, all silently, the little moon drops down behind the sky. This is a very standard Longfellow opening stanza. It's it's this great little natural scene. And in fact, if there was nothing left of this, this might remind me of, of like a Sappho fragment, just this nice little description of a natural phenomenon. And in fact, Longfellow had been reading Sappho and the other Greek lyric poets around the time that he was writing this. So it wouldn't surprise me if Sappho was in his mind as he was reading. The night is come but not too soon. And sinking silently, all silently, the little moon. There's a patience here, almost a savoring of the words. We have sinking silently, all silently, the little moon. It, it's almost a little precious. If the whole poem was like this, you know, if we, if we had you know, half a dozen or more stanzas that were just this, we might say, eh, this poem never really goes anywhere. It's kind of pretty, but I get tired. Longfellow is great at pacing, so he knows that by the end of this, we, we want something to happen. Before we get to the second stanza, which is very important, maybe I think the most interesting uh, stanza in the whole poem, let's note what's going on formally. The night is come, but not too soon. And sinking silently, all silently, the little moon drops down behind the sky. So da 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 is the first line. You know what that is? That's iambic tetrameter. Iambic tetrameter, very standard uh, in hymn meter and ballad meter. Da 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 da. And because we are familiar with the tradition of ballad slash hymn meter, we know that the next line will either be iambic tetrameter or iambic trimeter. Da 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 is what we might expect. Uh, that's iambic trimeter. And sinking silently. Da 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 da. Yep, there we are. And sinking silently, all silently, the little moon. Once again, iambic tetrameter drops down behind the sky. Iambic trimeter. Awesome. Longfellow, he knows his stuff. Some have said that Longfellow has the most variety of meter in his 
published poems of any poet of the 19th century. We need to go actually count. You could quantify this when it comes to published poetry. Are there more various meters in Longfellow's published poetry than in any other writer? I, I think so. I would want to compare him against Tennyson, who is also quite prolific. I think he's more has more variety than, say, someone like Wordsworth, who very much favored iambic pentameter, especially uh, blank verse. And even though Wordsworth may have published more lines of poetry than Longfellow, though Longfellow probably gave him a run for his money, most of Wordsworth, especially long poems, say the prelude, uh, thousands and thousands of lines, it's all blank verse, iambic pentameter. Okay, so the night has come, but not too soon. Great, nice little nice little stanza. But, you know, if this was all the poem was, it wouldn't be worth reading to you. It wouldn't be worth focusing on. It's this next stanza that really gets me. There is no light in earth or heaven, but the cold light of stars. And the first watch of the night is given to the red planet Mars. This first clause is, is a fascinating clause. There is no light in earth or heaven, but the cold light of stars. We could see this as, as, I don't know, a poetic meditation. There is no light but the light of stars. And you might think that someone maybe is standing out in the field at night or looking out their window and seeing starlight and say, ah, oh, there's no light out there but starlight. But in fact, I actually think this is, this is more than that. I think this is actually, we might call it scientific observation. Because in fact, there is no light in earth or heaven but the cold light of stars. Especially if we're in an age pre-electric lights, what other light is there in the entire universe than that which comes from stars? All sunlight is starlight. On every planet, especially every planet that doesn't have electric lights, all that light is light from stars. It's a very interesting thing to think about. Uh, Longfellow, and especially Poe, his contemporary, is one of these American poets who begins to be interested in science, in thinking about the world from an observing, measuring, repeating point of view. Poe was more that than Longfellow, but Longfellow has this interesting observation here. If we don't count firelight, which I mean, I guess you could say immediately could uh, be starlight, um, all light is starlight. That's an interesting observation. What's he going to do with it? Because this is what a poet does, and Poe is very good at this as well as Longfellow. Whenever you have a scientific observation, you know in the poet's mind it's going to start connecting with many, many things. And in the end is going to come around to being about human experience or maybe poetry and art itself. Okay, so what's he going to do with this? There is no light in earth or heaven, but the cold light of stars, and the first watch of the night is given to the red planet Mars. Well, okay, so the cold light of stars, cool, we're focusing on the sun, and I think even more than the sun, uh, the further stars, uh, because this isn't hot sunlight, this is cold light. It's interesting, I was once in a discussion of Dante where we posited that starlight is never negative in poetry. Right? Sometimes moonlight can be negative or eerie, but starlight, starlight's always positive. It's interesting that this starlight is not warm or twinkling, it's cold. Especially if it's nighttime, all the light that you're getting from the heavens is cold light. You're not being warmed by it. And then he zooms into one particular light in the sky. And the first watch of the night is given to the red planet Mars. Now, I don't know how scientifically accurate this is, but if we take... 
Longfellow at his word, Mars is up first in the night sky of the planets. But of course, the light of Mars is reflected starlight. Mars itself gives off no light. It reflects the light of the sun and perhaps other stars. Is it the tender star of love? The star of love and dreams? Oh no, from that blue tent above, a hero's armor gleams. This is great because Longfellow kind of knows our connotations with starlight. Oh, tender. Even if it's cold, it's, it's harmless. Maybe it's kind of nice, right? Starlight looks over the dreaming child in many a poem, maybe even in other Longfellow poems. But no, he doesn't want to talk about tender starlight. He doesn't want to talk about star of love and dreams, all that sweet, mushy stuff we'd expect from a poet. No, from the blue tent above, from the firmament, a hero's armor gleams. Now, one might wonder, why is it a tent? That seems kind of a random thing. Ah, because he's bringing us toward a martial metaphor. And who lives in tents? Warriors. Warriors about to go to battle. So this firmament, this black or blue night sky, has now become the tent of a warrior. A tent, in fact, of a hero, a demigod. A hero, of course, doesn't just mean someone who wins or someone who is a positive or protagonist figure in a poem or story. A hero means a demigod in classical literature. And as a student of classical literature, Longfellow is using it in this way. And earnest thoughts within me rise when I behold afar suspended in the evening skies, the shield of that red star. So this is really interesting. We now have actually three different types of descriptions of Mars. First, it's the red planet. Then it's the armor of a hero. And now it's the shield of the hero or god Mars. It's interesting to point out that Mars is not a hero. Mars is just straight up a god. A hero would be part god. There's a little bit of elision that's going on between meanings of Mars. Is Mars the shield of a god? Is Mars the armor of a hero? Is Mars just Mars the god himself? Is it a planet? Should we think of it as a, a heavenly body in the Newtonian sense? All of these things are sort of colliding and connecting in this poem. O oh, star of strength, I see thee stand and smile upon my pain. Thou beckonest with thy mailed hand, and I am strong again. Okay, so now the star, Mars, which of course is a planet, not a star, but all the light that's coming from it is starlight. It's a little complicated. O oh, star of strength, I see thee stand and smile upon my pain. Is smiling upon someone's pain a good thing usually? I mean, sometimes to smile upon someone's pain can be very unfeeling. Especially if that smile turns into a laugh, we might call mocking one's pain. That's something that heroes shouldn't do, certainly. That seems cruel or villainous. But the Star of Strength smiles upon my, the speaker's, pain. Thou beckonest with thy mailed hand, and I am strong again. So this isn't a hero or a god in armor that's mocking one in pain. This is, this is a heroic figure that's, that's giving strength to the suffering. Within my breast there is no light but the cold light of stars. Aha! 
Longfellow is doing his Longfellow thing. So we've had one, two, three, four, five stanzas that have given us this night sky, this there is no light in earth or heaven but the cold light of stars. Then we have a moving into the Mars image in three stanzas. In that final stanza before this sixth one, we have Mars sort of is in a relationship with the speaker. Mars is encouraging the speaker. And now we go inside the speaker. Longfellow does this a lot, especially in his early poetry. Within my breast, there is no light but the cold light of stars. But the cold light of stars is in fact the exact same line as the second line of the second stanza. There is no light in earth or heaven but the cold light of stars. Within my breast, there is no light but the cold light of stars. If you weren't sure what parallelisms Longfellow wants to draw here, he's making it real clear. I'm talking about the night sky and the universe, and I'm relating it to my internal state. This is like Romanticism 101, that the universe is a mirror of man's soul, and that man's soul is a mirror of the universe. And what happens in the universe happens in man's soul. Within my breast there is no light but the cold light of stars. I give the first watch of the night to the red planet Mars. Okay, so the planet Mars was something in heaven, and now it's somehow existing within him. And we already know there's a relationship between them possible, because Mars has beckoned and strengthened him. The star of the unconquered will, he rises in my breast, serene and resolute and still and calm and self-possessed. Whoa, this sounds like a very strong speaker. Earlier, it was a speaker who has pain, who needs to be strengthened. Now, the star is rising within him. His will is unconquered, serene, resolute, still, calm, self-possessed. Well, that's neat. How do you get Mars to rise within you? This is a poem I said I was going to say an autobiographical thing. This is a poem that was very encouraging to me a number of years ago. I was going through uh, some, some grief in my personal life. And I remember reading this poem, and it's always difficult. And we've talked about this in podcasts before. It's always difficult when you've had a, a, an important experience with a poem not to read your own experience with it onto you know the correct interpretation. But it's worth saying... Longfellow here is saying, look, I was one in pain. I was one who needed strengthening. And my relationship with Mars, an odd thing to say, my relationship with Mars, or at least the idea of martialness, that is the idea that one can regain an unconquered will, can be strengthened by this spirit in the stars or the spirit that's possible for man to have. It was encouraging to me. Partly because we see in Longfellow here someone who wants to be strengthened, who doesn't want to wallow. Also someone who doesn't want to just think about tenderness and love. It seems like sometimes poetry, especially very easily accessible poetry, and poetry that's written perhaps to, to just stoke sentiment, often defaults to a, oh, aren't things nice, or oh, love, oh, friendship, oh, oh, the sweet things in life, and a celebration of that. No. Longfellow says, look, pain, weakness, that's what I want to look at. I don't want to be a poet of, of tender love. I have pain. And as we talked about before in this podcast, it was a number of podcasts ago, so if you've forgotten, I won't blame you. But Longfellow in the mid-1830s 
lost both his first wife and his first child suddenly, unexpectedly, and tragically. Uh, they were kind of on basically the equivalent of, of a sort of second honeymoon uh, a few years into their marriage in Europe. And uh, his wife was pregnant and miscarried and because of complications of miscarriage died. And they were basically on vacation together. It, it was horribly traumatic, of course, uh, to Longfellow. He had to pay to put his wife's body in a coffin that could be transported on a ship back to the United States. And because he had some work duties still in Europe, he had to stay in Europe and send his wife's body back to America. Very, very traumatic. Something that kind of scarred Longfellow for many, many years. So when Longfellow says pain, when Longfellow says sadness or weakness, this isn't, you know, I, I had a crush on a girl, but she didn't like me that we often think of, you know, the poet as the unrequited romantic. No, this is a man who has loved and lived and lost. He is looking at the stars and calling on Mars to be his aid. It's a little pagan, honestly, right? One could read this and say, you know, this isn't terribly out of place if a Stoic was writing it or, or one, of these, one of these Greeks that he was reading while he was working on the Psalms of Life. We could end with the star of the unconquered will. He rises in my breast, serene and resolute and still and calm and self-possessed. We could end there and we'd say, oh, okay, cool. So Mars rises in the sky and is a symbol of strength. And Mars metaphorically rises within him when he is encouraged and is strong again. Isn't that nice? It would be an okay poem for that. But Longfellow, once again, he's a poet of the early 19th century. He wants to encourage his audience. So he turns out in the last two stanzas, toward his audience. He says, and thou too, whosoe'er thou art, that readest this brief psalm, as one by one thy hopes depart, be resolute and calm. It's not, and thou too, whosoe'er thou art, that readest this brief psalm, as you sit there meditating upon this verse, be resolute and calm. No, he, he kind of digs a knife in. As you are disappointed over and over, as the hope you have for the future leaves and leaves and leaves, how should you react? Be resolute and calm. That's a high calling, Longfellow. But he said, Mars rises in the sky and Mars rose in my heart. You can be resolute and calm. And then he ends with this sort of stirring stanza, Oh, fear not in a world like this. And thou shalt know ere long how sublime a thing it is to suffer and be strong. Now, some have said that this to labor and to wait, this last line of Psalm of Life, sums up Longfellow's philosophy of his early career. Uh, we labor and we wait. This is kind of an intensification of that. To suffer and be strong. It's not just to wait, it's to be strong. It's not just to labor, it's to suffer. Edmund Burke, who was most memorable for his reflections on the revolution in France, sort of a conservative English critique of the French Revolution. He was also known, especially to the Romantics, as this proponent of this idea of sublimity in his philosophical investigation into the ideas of the sublime and the beautiful, a very short and concise title. Uh, he basically says, look, we use the word beautiful too broadly. Really, we should use the word sublime when we're talking about something that's aesthetically pleasing because of its greatness, its awesomeness. 
It's sort of standing and towering over us in its overpowering majesty. The word for that isn't beautiful, it's sublime. And so things like darkness, things like the universe, things like great waterfalls or storms or tempests or earthquakes, these to the romantics they called sublime. And it's a positive aesthetic category, but it's also something that's bigger than you, that's more powerful than you, that's kind of the highest you can experience. So Longfellow then is intentionally using the word sublime to single out a human experience, which is suffering and being strong, being resolute and calm in the face of one's hopes departing one by one. One might fault Longfellow for sounding a little self-helpy in these poems, but what he's talking about is a really difficult situation. When I am disappointed, when what I wanted for my life doesn't happen, is it possible to continue to be strong? Not to continue to be cheerful even. He doesn't say, you know, turn that frown upside down. Be strong, be resolute and calm in the face of sadness. And that will be sublime. The sublimity of the waterfall, of the night sky, of the, of the depth and darkness of the universe, and beyond that to whatever, whatever divine realms lie beyond it. That sublimity is akin to the experience of suffering and being strong. Now, it's interesting to note that Longfellow was also reading the Stoic Marcus Aurelius a little later in 1839 and thought that he was a little too much of a downer. So I've suggested that this is a little Stoic, though Longfellow thought the Stoics were a little too grim. But he himself is a bit of a Stoic here. Be strong and suffer and you will experience sublimity. And biographically, it's important to know Longfellow is saying this from experience. This isn't a naive man. This is a man who has been broken and who has slowly rebuilt his life and writes more than one psalm of life trying to encourage us. But not always what we look for in poetry, especially of the 20th century, encouragement from one who has suffered, but it's something the 19th century does very well. And it's something that I think endures and maybe something that our culture... Right now, I mean, I, I, I speak in March of 2018, I think it's something that maybe our culture is coming back toward, a sentimentality that acknowledges suffering and trauma and that encourages those who are going through it to keep on going. It's something poetry does well. And when we reject that in poetry, I think we lose something. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. You can check us out at stconstantine.org. Thank you.